Hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other, Matt Taibbi. And, I, and he is the other, Matt Taibbi. <laughs> no, I'm the other host, Matt Taibbi. Yeah, I guess you're right. Been. I guess that's what I, that, that, that is what I just said, right? I don't know. And I'm the other, if it's, and I'm the other comma, Matt Taibbi, right? Then that works? Right, but yeah, exactly. Commas. Right. Commas are silent. Right. Yeah, the, forget what they call that. There's a, there's a term in law about what you were last referring to in the in the sequence. In but law? That, yeah, I'll, I'll, huh. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. There's, it came up in a, in a recent... Uh, there's a sister-in-law, brother-in-law, term-in-law. Hello. <laughs> uh, so uh, we have a great show coming up for you today. Actually, yeah. we don't know if it's going to be a great show. It could it's actually be, be a... It's going to be a great show. It could actually be a bomb, but I'm bummed. I haven't, I haven't really brought out puns lately, so I'm on a, I'm on no, a no, you, Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta Up make up for lost news. time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Could be an explosive interview. Could be an explosive interview that could have the, the, the consequences of which could radiate out for years. Yes, yes. Right. Hopefully it won't be a cancer on, on the, of the on society, on society. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, but we'll do our best to be, to survive. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, and get to uh, the next stage of our our lives and make sure that it doesn't cast a shadow on our reputation. Right. So um, you uh, should we just explain? No. What we're talk? No. no. All right. Remind no. me that when we do bring it up, I have to tell you a story about my summer camp mm. relating to how this these days are commemorated. I'm struggling to oh i see okay yes i can only imagine yeah. what that was what that was like uh okay so we have a great show to, uh coming up uh maybe uh we hope with um with a really excellent guest who we're not going to tell you about right now because yeah. it's funnier that way uh and um a lot of stuff happened this week uh including the resignation of your favorite person uh andrew cuomo and uh what else what else happened this week oh infrastructure Oh, yeah, but who gives a fuck really yeah. about that? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a Bernie bill. So that in itself makes me, of course, an interested party. Right. Um, it's, it, it sets you all a Twitter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. a flit of, so, yeah, we'll talk about that. You can talk about why it's relevant or not relevant. I'll let you decide that. What else happened? Uh, anything else? Well, there is a you know, no one talked about the fact that there was, of course, the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima and then Nagasaki. Which really, like, the only place you were reminded of that, I think, was Democracy Now. Right. One other show may get to it, but we'll we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It'll be a te it'll be you know, and if you any other show that gets to it, it's a really, it's kind of a Rubicon moment. It's a it's a it's a testament to their to their really enhanced political sensitivity to yeah. Uh, yeah. history, to the moment, to relevancy yeah. of uh, important issues, all those things. So um we'll see so that, we'll, see, we'll see we'll see what show might or might not do that yeah um, clear and then uh in the meantime let's just get let's get to the four food groups yeah all right uh quick uh republicans suck democrat oh it's the other way right democrats, democrats suck, suck, Republic yeah republicans yeah. suck uh and it's you uh who starts it's his eye who starts so let's start with we got to give you the story i mean we got to just give you an update uh about gov uh what is it once and past governor uh, Andrew Cuomo, mm -hmm. who probably because of this show's treatment of him resigned. I, I think that this is a big, big part of his resignation. I think he took stock. I think he checked in. He watched the show. Um, you know, we had a nice, a nice analysis. And I think, uh, 
you know, he felt conflicted. I think Matt, he felt encouraged to go on by Matt, discouraged <laughs> to go on by Katie. Well, and wait, I think, wait a minute. That's not exactly true. Well, what Matt, you? what you don't know is that that report names a couple of advisors and the unnamed advisor was actually Matt Taibbi. Oh, right. Yes. And I offered exactly. Matt Taibbi a leave of absence while he right. advised Andrew. Right. Unnamed actually, advisor was, A, right? Un, yeah, exactly. And Matt was actually advising Chris Cuomo, who was advising Andrew Cuomo. Right. So by the transitive property of advisement, I yeah. was advising the right. governor, ex-governor. Ex-governor. And you well, actually, not yet. He's still the yet. governor. Once and future ex-governor? No. For, the ex-governor 14 days hence. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or um, thir 13 now, or probably 12 by the time this gets out. Or 11. 11 even. If we're being honest. Yeah, I if love we're that being expression. Honest. It's such a if, weird expression. It's The premise is that we're usually not, right? Or that we have the capability of not being. Yeah. Yeah. But it's yeah. noteworthy enough of a thing that we're being honest. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a it's consideration. Remarkable. Literally right. remarkable, right? Right, right. We are remarking upon it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what what do you think about this? Well, should we can we watch some of the video? Sure. Yeah. Let's go to the videotape. Because I work for you. And doing the right thing is doing the right thing for you. Because as we say, it's not about me. It's about we. Who says that? Kathy Hochul, my lieutenant governor. Bernie. Smart and competent. This transition must be seamless. We have a lot going on. I'm very worried about the Delta variant, and so should you be. But she can come up to speed quickly, and my resignation will be effective in 14 days. To my team, Melissa DeRosa, Robert Mejica, Beth Garvey, Stephanie Benton, Dana Caratanudo, Kelly Cummings, Rich Party, Howard Zucker, Rick Cotton, General Lieber, Jack Davies, and the hundreds of dedicated administration officials. Whose laps I sat on. I want to say this. <laughs> and who Thank all read it, who like all dropped me. You. And be proud. We made New York State the progressive capital of the nation. I mean. No other state government accomplished more to help people. And that is what it's all about. Just think about what we did. We passed marriage equality, creating a new it's civil It's so funny life. watching, like, Legalized this guy has a huge ego, like many for people. For the LGBTQ in, community. You know, he's saying this isn't about me, this is about we, but he is, again, as, as a New Yorker, he is black, he's Jewish, he's gay, he's a woman protecting her reproductive rights. So all of these things are actually selfish, or self-interested, I should say when you're such an intersection of so many identities. But it is funny hearing him say that he cares about, you know, the people and it's not about himself. I mean, this is a guy who what has an Emmy because of the way he read his book. He wrote a book about this. Uh, he has drawings of himself and his family. It's just a funny, requires a lot of uh, suspension of disbelief, mm -hmm. if I'm being honest. I thank Speaker Carl Heasty and leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins for their leadership. And let me say this on a personal note. In many ways, I see the world through the eyes of my daughters, Kara, Mariah, and Michaela. They are 26 and 26, twins, and 23. And I have lived this experience with and through them. What? I have sat on the couch with them 
hearing the ugly accusations for weeks. I have seen the look in their eyes and the expression on their faces, and it hurt. I want my three jewels to know this. My greatest goal is for them to have a better future than the generations of women before them. It is still in many ways a man's world. It always has been. Woke. We uh -huh. have sexism that is culturalized and institutionalized. My daughters have more talent and natural, natural gifts than I ever had. I want to make sh sure that society allows them to fly as high as their wings will carry them. There should be no assumptions, no stereotypes, no limitations. So th this is, uh, I, I'm really glad that Cuomo is, is seeing this through the eyes of his daughters. Uh, he really tries to get so much mileage out of the fact that he has daughters. He mentions them all the time. And it's funny that in this, you know, as he's resigning as governor of New York and claiming to make it, claiming that it's not about him, he manages to make this all about himself and his daughters. Mm -hmm. He's really trying to use women as a shield. We saw that in his other response where he was talking about how unfair the double standard towards women was, as if that had anything to do with his actions. Mm -hmm. um, it's just weird. I don't know. There's a lot of, uh, I think he wants... <laughs> I like, the, does he not know about the Icarus, the whole Icarus story? You mean you want, the flying too close to the sun yeah, business? Yeah. Pretty like sure he, he's probably he, aware of that one. Yeah. He just, I mean, he, I feel like he's setting up his daughters for, for success failure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a father son thing, I think. Right. But I guess it doesn't have to be inherently fathers and sons. Right. Does that's it? what he's doing. That's what he's showing us, Matt. Yeah, yeah. He, he wants the world to be a different place for them. He wants them to live in a less sexist world. I feel like he wants them to get the nepotism that he and his brother got, mm -hmm. you know, as women. Except they won't now. Because of his, because he flew too close to the sun. By, right. by sun, we mean bosom of women, not metaphorical bosom, actual bosom. <laughs> actual bosom. Yeah. Allegedly. Allegedly. He tried to cup the sun. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm being glib about it, but it's serious, obviously. And um, yeah, I, I just think that uh, it's funny how much he tries to weaponize woke identity politics, whether he's identifying well, as other things or what seeing else? the world through his daughter's eyes. I mean, this is mandatory in Democratic Party politics now. Yeah, It's just yeah. so funny. It's in the context of like, I, he's saying he wants them to live in a better world. It's like, I want them to live in a world where uh, they don't have to deal with men like me. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, of course, it comes off as terrible. But yeah, uh, to be fair, there isn't a whole lot he can say in the circumstances that isn't going to sound completely no, asinine. You but know? I do think the daughter focus is weird. I think it's inappropriate, not inappropriate in like a, you know, a sexual way, but inappropriate in a personalized way. I mean, we were constantly the daughters, though, I guess, I mean, we are talking about a guy who made it. Uh, I mean, I, I think the argument could go the other way, though, that if he were to resist, the argument would be, how can you be, how can you look your daughters in the eye and continue to govern? Given oh, no, all? right. I'm just saying, I don't think maybe he, I don't know if he needs to mention them. Mm. I guess because this is, I think this is his way of avoiding apologizing to them.
So yeah, that's my Democrat suck. Also, we could throw in just for good measure in Britain, US lawyers are presenting their case in a preliminary hearing challenging a court's decision to halt the extradition of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who faces up to 70, 175 years in prison in the US under the Espionage Act for publishing classified documents exposing US war crimes. So again, something that that I was just quoting Democracy Now! would be nice if other places reported on this. Uh, it's kind of a big deal. You'd think that the media would be kind of interested in it. And again, the, what's kind of extra disturbing about this is that we now know that one of the biggest elements of the case was based on uh, lies. This Icelandic witness who happens to be a convicted um, embezzler and a sex offender who has been diagnosed with some sociopathic tendencies, which is kind of weird that that was their star witness in the first place. Um, but he admitted to lying. So you think that you would think that maybe the US government would like want to save face and drop it, but no. Right. Yeah. Better just to go forward, you know, yeah. with uh, a lengthy indictment. And lengthy indictment, which just to be clear, like 90, oh, huh, 90 or a report. I mean, because we are talking about crime, um, criminal court. But I mean, just to be clear, I think 90% of the, of the American population thinks that Assange is in trouble over 2016. Yeah. Which is why one of the reasons that nobody, I mean, nobody who should give a shit gives a shit. Right. Also, and then there's a percentage of people who, who don't, who think that, well, even if it isn't about 2016, he deserves to go to be punished for 2016, not realizing that the precedent yeah. is going to impact people right. who are not Julian Assange, but whatever. Right. And then there's some people who just think it was terrible to release like collateral murder. Yeah. That's like, yeah, there's a slice of those people too. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I guess there's a slice of any kind of person in America. Yeah. A yeah. lot of assholes are sliced up in this. Yeah. All the sliced assholes. Uh, all right, that's good. So, uh, so what do we have for Republicans suck? Comes from Fox, which is actually interesting in itself. That Fox was the was the outlet that covered this. And the headline is Republicans raise security privacy concerns as IRS stays silent on ProPublica leak. And the lead says Republicans on Tuesday pressed the IRS for answers regarding a leak of high-profile taxpayer data. Uh, to ProPublica earlier this year, expressing concern about possible threats to national security and Americans' privacy. Uh, Senator Mike Crapo, our Idaho ranking member of the Senate Finance uh, Committee, and Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, sought details as to how the sensitive information was obtained and uh, whether a, quote, major security incident took place. The veracity of ProPublica's claims remain unknown. Daryl Issa of California is saying that the situation highlights the fact that the IRS is out of control, quote, failing its obligation to every American and in need of reform before the situation work worsens. Um, it's proof positive that anyone can have their most private information made public and used to destroy them if it advances the agenda of Democrats or shores up the power of progressive special interests. Now, what they're talking about, and here, Matt, if we could open the other piece, which is from ProPublica, uh, by an uh, article by Justin Elliott and uh, Robert Fatirici. Uh, it's part of a series, Secret IRS Files Reveal How Much the Ultra-Wealthy Gained by Shaping Trump's Big Beautiful Tax Cut. Uh, and it talks about how in November 2017, uh, Trump was about to push through his tax overhaul, 
when uh, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said he wasn't going to vote for the bill. And everyone's like, what's going on? Why is a Republican not voting for this tax cut? And it turns out that he was holding up uh, his support uh, because he wanted a bigger tax cut. He wanted a um, the bill's authors to fatten the tax cut for um, what are called pass-through businesses, which are uh, companies that are where the profits pass through to their owners. They ended up including this, uh, this section uh, in the bill. It ended up having a major impact for uh, a lot of donors. And the ProPublica story quotes one section, uh, Dick and Liz Uline of the packaging uh, giant Uline, along with roofing magnate Diane Hendricks, together had contributed around $20 million to groups backing Ron Johnson's 2016 re-election campaign. The expanded tax break Johnson muscled through netted them $215 million in deductions in 2018 alone, drastically reducing the income they owed uh, taxes on. At that rate, the cut would could deliver more than half a billion in tax savings for Hendricks uh, and, and the Ulins over its eight-year life. So uh, what ended up happening is that ProPublica basically, somebody leaked um, all this information about who was getting the biggest tax breaks in uh, via this the the pass-through cuts so the republicans were kind of split on this because some of them wanted to make hay over uh, some of the people that they didn't like who got these these tax cuts but over that more of them fell on the side of defending uh the fat cats who who overwhelmingly were the subject of this this right. report uh, and so that's where you're getting people like daryl isa talking about how it's an outrage no no Obviously, in reality, we do not want the IRS leaking our private information to the press as a matter of course. Just what's interesting about this case is that it's talking about these massively wealthy people who happen to give a lot of money to the key uh, members of uh, Congress who got this particular tax break approved. So this is like this is like classic. Uh, again, it's like old school Republican uh villainy although i guess both of the parties do this but but this is pay a lot of money to a politician get an obscure tax break that nobody ever hears about yeah in a very rare instance ProPublica, which is like one of the last places where actual investigative journalism is still done they do this and uh you know so it comes out exactly how how grotesque it is i mean one of the things that's i think really interesting about the story and illustrative is that it doesn't cost all that much. Like it's, it's so, it's so beneficial to pay massive amounts of money to a Senator because you can give like $15 million and you can get back half a billion or a billion dollars really easily. So this is a, this is an interesting story. Yeah. It's really good bang for your buck. And it's a, it's an interesting story. Probably there are going to be some other people who are going to be uh, outed in this in this affair who, um, uh, who, who that's going to make people in both parties uncomfortable. For instance, Mike Bloomberg uh, got a uh, $183 million deduction in 2018. The Bechtel family, uh, they got $100, $111 million in tax guess, deductions. Yes, they failed the Bechtel test. But I'm right. But I'm, that's right. That's right. This is an interesting, interesting thing that, again, we we would not have heard about were it not for a leak, but it's like common practice in 
payola government. Mm. So, all right. So what do we have for, uh, for isn't that weird? So for isn't that weird? Um, uh, let's see, Wilson, could you just play? I feel like maybe, uh, I don't even want to tell Matt to set up, although I guess I'll see it from, uh, from the title of the case, but, um, this is a, uh, a a video that was shared by a Colombian mayor. It's a security guard, you need to know. Okay. So. Is he okay. being attacked by his own flashlight? He's being attacked by a ghost. Oh, can I see again? Okay, here it is. I'm not getting ghosts from that. Well, let me make, let me allow the, the mayor to speak uh, for himself. Uh, a Colombian mayor tweeted out or shared, I think on social media. Um, I wanna share this video with you today, emphasizing that as mayor, I have the conviction that faith has insurmountable power. And it's a, it's a uh, grainy minute long clip uh, of an officer who's strolling down the hallway before veering violently into a wall as if flung by a, a supernatural entity. That's the description that the New York Post gives. But he, he said, um, he's the one who, who you know, the, the mayor said the, the other thing. And then he says, I want to give everyone a little peace of mind and let them know that in the company of the bishop and other religious leaders, we will bring God's blessing to every corner of this workplace. We ask for respect and union and prayer. And we assure you that nothing can steal our peace and tranquility because we are protected by the hand of our Lord. Then, then there, you know, there were some mixed uh, reviews, mixed responses uh, to the mayor's uh, statements. A supporter said, thank the mayor for the strength, my mayor and friend, I send you hugs. Another supporter, this is my mayor, always in the hands of the creator. And then someone else, though, said, um, the least they'll say now is that the ghost is embezzling from the mayor. I mean, I guess I would feel reassured that we we are protected by our benevolent God, right? Yeah. I'm not getting ghosts from that. I'm getting, getting? I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting man rolling around on the floor with his own flashlight. But what's flinging him, Matt? I ask you. He is. He's flinging himself. Yeah. I mean, you ever watch the Three Stooges? I mean, well, what about at least? I mean, what I would say as an, a secular person, but I'm trying to, you know, give them some. Why not just say he was taken over by a devil? I guess it's the flash of light that they're trying to say makes it look like a a ghost. Maybe. Was the ghost saying anything? Unclear, because I'm not sure there was audio on that video, but that's a really good question. Give it back. Give it back. What's it? What would it be? I don't know. <laughs> it would be, it'd be so, something mysterious, right? Right. Kenneth, what is the frequency? Maybe give me back my, my street. Get off my street. As ghost videos go, that... You're not impressed. Yeah, it's also it's a it's super grainy too. That's true, but you know maybe the ghosts change the maybe there's that's an effect of the ghost presence. I think Chris, in the digital Chris. age, I want I want it I want it to look really good. Yeah, you know, like yeah, like high yeah HD. Right, like who's who's a dead person? Uh, I give up. Uh, I don't know, da David Bowie, right? Sure. No, let's 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 make it a more unpleasant dead person. Who's an unpleasant dead person? Rockefeller. Uh, uh, I don't know why he Kissinger's still alive. Right? I know that's yeah. Uh, um, 
Nixon. Nixon's dead, right? Reagan. Yes, Nixon. Nixon and Reagan. Yeah. And Bush. Papa Bush. Bush. Papa yeah. Bush. So are we, you trying to envision all those? Yeah. People? Like if, 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 you know, a, a well-wishers were at Ronald Reagan's grave and one of them had a cell phone and all of a sudden the ground opened up and Reagan came out and choked one of the people to death on the camera. Right. I, you know, I'd be, I'd be more convinced in that case. Right. Okay. Because it's on brand. I, I'm, I'm not understanding. You're saying because. I mean, I like, want to, I want to see something like that's right. identifiable. It should, it should look, you should know exactly what you're dealing with. And there right. should be you a result at the, the end. Is. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's a very famous dead Colombian that we just don't recognize. That it could be that, but you don't, you can, there, is there a face in there? It's just like a sort of a, the real. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ethereal, you shouldn't say quad, but and also maybe there's just a dead, famous dead person vibe that we're not getting. Yeah, could be that, but not not terribly conveyed on video. Right. And hey, look, that that is weird. It's weird. I yeah, mean, at maybe. the very least, it's weird that the mayor tweeted that out. But then right. again, we have a mayor who once hid in a coffin, pretending to be dead. Right. Uh, because he didn't want to face a mask punishment. Right. We should find out what the weirdest mayor in the world is. Yeah, that's true. What the weirdest mayor, mayor all. Yeah, that's actually, I wonder what it is. It's probably a pretty good list. Yeah, good mayor, weird mayor listicle. There was also something I was considering doing, by the way, which I just want to put it out there. It's from like last August. It's not, or, or the, the fall. It's not that recent, but I don't think got enough attention, which is that um, there was, uh, and because the Delta variant is coming out and people are nervous again, just something that people could consider is that there was a Canadian uh, karaoke bar where they set up a shower, like so you could sing in a shower, um, where they set up just like a sealed off plastic area. I'm just bringing that up because it's weird, but it's also could be very useful. Okay. Um, so that was my other potential weird. Isn't that weird? Do we have a picture? So you go in there and, but water doesn't fall on you. No, sorry. Yeah, that was just like a, a little, right. It's just, it's basically, how would you describe that? I mean, it's a. It's like a little vestibule that's got plastic. It looks like a shower curtain around it, but right, you're right. you're basically still wearing your clothes and everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's no water and there's no exposure. You're just sealed and it's a sealed off thing. But I think that they, so they made a shower stall complete with curtains and tubular piping for the stage. And you see one guy who's singing inside that and one guy who's singing outside of it. And this was developed just to give the place a shout out. Tracy's Place Karaoke Bar and Restaurant in Hamilton, Ontario. So they closed and then they reopened in October 2020. Doing it in the shower is a great way to stay sanitized and keep everything clean, uh, the owner said. Uh, and normally she has to rush people along because there's such high demand to get behind the mic. Now she plays a song between each singer, giving her a chance to clean down the shower stall. Shower curtains also separate the tables. I think it's it's cool. And I, I'm just one. I feel like maybe that we could do that in lots of restaurants, definitely with karaoke, but you'd need more of these. You can't. I don't know if with Delta, I don't think you want anyone outside of the plastic things. I don't know. I'm worried about I think Delta. they should. I think they should add the, the, the actual. I mean, I, I think. Water? They should, yeah, I think people it, sh it should be like a neck to knee level thing that that covers up your body. You, you actually go in and take a shower. Right. So the whole thing is you're... sealed off, but you're not exposing yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. It'd be a little bit like, I mean, you're probably, you're too young for the White Shadow show. Remember that? Mm -mm, no, what's that? It was a show in the 80s where a high school basketball team 
uh, it was about it was a feel good drama about a, a high school basketball team. And one of and one of the recurring themes was they sang in the shower after practice. So they had scenes where all the players would would sing in their little stalls. Right. Which would be covered with a curtain or. Well, you just wouldn't see there. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The atmosphere was added to by the sound of the trinkling right. water and all that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So we could. And there's the whole singing in the shower thing, which is supposed to be good for your vagal nerve or something. Not vagal nerve, vagal, vagal gland. I don't know, whatever. It's supposed to be good for you to sing in the shower. Okay. So we could do a bunch of outdoor showers. Delta, I'm all for it. Karaoke in the age of Delta and Corona is scary. It is. It is. It's a risky proposition for yeah. sure. Yeah. So we can't let them take that away from us. Isn't that terrible? Is is um I think pretty easy this week. The world is on fire. Yeah, there's a scary yeah. report that came up. But basically, everywhere in the world is on fire. Matt, can we see clips first of Greece? The people on a ferry. For people who are just watching, uh, just listening, not watching, how would you describe that? Yeah, that that is um, a whole bunch of people on a ferry uh, near Evia, Greece, uh, and they are in a ferry because they are leaving the town, which is um, basically bursting the flames, and they're looking out the the sides of the boat, actually on all sides of the boat and just looking at the flames licking the sky all around them. Yeah. So that sucks. And then and it's let's... like bright red. Bright red. Yeah. I mean, it's like if it weren't so disturbing, it's actually kind of stunning. Mm -hmm. Here's Yakutia, if we could see that, which is in Siberia, by the way. <laughs> enormous area of one of the coldest places on earth is like on fire and, and what we're seeing is footage of um sort of cabins and homes residential homes just uh burning okay. and there's smoke everywhere uh, which tells you that the fires are probably all around for quite for quite a large area because everything's sort of engulfed in smoke um and then uh, additionally we have uh sacramento there's a brief clip of our own contribution to this saturday these images are from near the small town of greenville california northeast of sacramento they were shot on tuesday this is what the same town looks like a few days later reduced to ash and smoldering ruins from the raging dixie fire the wildfire just won in a series of extreme weather events from flooding in germany to wildfires in greece that have occurred over the past few months. So that's that's CBS News uh, telling us about Sacramento. And then there's Algeria is the last one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. This is Kabylia. That's also very red. So it's very like revelations. I don't know, climate change, right? Yeah, climate change, bad. Um, also, there was a report. The IPCC. 
Yeah. Saying that <clears throat> that it uh, it's code red for humanity. Global warming is sort of ma- is massively on the increase, but we knew that. So right. uh, yeah, we don't even need to tell you that news. No, but you can, uh, you, you can just assume that, that it was thing. the first major report in nearly a decade from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yeah, not good news. Climate change story has gotten to the point where it's like um, it's sort of testing the human ability to compartmentalize. Yeah, it's just it's like, a constant. Isn't that terrible? There's only so much any of us can do about it, except elect politicians, and the and the ones we elect tend not to do anything about it. So, well, yeah, we got to pressure them. Yeah, but the, even so, they won't. They'll they'll wait until it's like a COVID level emergency, and then fuck it up, and then and then eventually somebody will come around with what would have been a solution probably now. How do we steer, how do we steer this back to something that's like funny? Oh, well, luckily we have a great, uh, luckily our interview is a knee slapper. <laughs> it really is. It's really like one of those sort of just nothing but levity kind of interviews. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me just, you know, let, let's just to summarize that report, just going to very quickly, here's what it found. Global surface temperature was 1.09 Celsius higher in, in the decade between 2011 and 2020 than before 1850 to 1900. The past five years have been the hottest on record since 1850. The recent rate of sea level rise has nearly tripled compared with 1901 to 1971. Human influence is very likely 90%. The main driver of the global retreat of glaciers since the 1990s and the decrease in Arctic sea ice it is virtually certain that hot extremes, including heat waves, have become more frequent and more intense since the 1950s, while cold events have become less frequent and less severe. We have no time. Right. Or, you know, you just should live in a place that doesn't have a whole lot of flammable stuff around you. Although I guess living in or the water. coldest place. Yeah. Or water. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, so there's going to be increased uh, fires. I mean, how how bad does that have to get before? I mean, all right. We're going to have to, Matt, we got to figure this out. We have a couple of episodes to figure this out. How we're going to stop climate change. How we're going to stop climate change. Yeah. Guys, let us know. Hashtag useful idiots pod. Handle useful idiot pod. Problem with solving climate change is that it, it, it will take a level of investment that nobody will commit to. We just need to scare everyone. We need to take all the world leaders, take photos of their kids and grandkids, and then like Photoshop them onto someone on fire. I thought you were going to say just take their grandkids and grandkids <laughs> and set too. them on fire. No, never set, but we could kit. Okay, we could do something to them, which I can't say, I think, on uh, on air because I could be probably prosecuted for it. But we could take them on a vacation. We could take their kids and grandkids on vacation. We could take them on vacation to some of the nicest spots in the world that'll be ruined if we don't do something. So it'll really be like a nice sightseeing thing. And it'll be to, to motivate people to, to see how beautiful these places are. We could take them on a vacation and, and it wouldn't, they wouldn't know ahead of time. Right. Those vacations. That's the more dramatic thing, which I think we can build to. Um, but I think as a first round of, of um, activism, we just Photoshop their kids and grandkids faces, more grandkids, I guess. What about um, just sort of blowtorching the testicles of some of the some of the key politicians? I'm not sure if they'll get that it's because of climate change. It'll be a harder sell to convince them that climate change is what, no, well, blow, is what well, sets their testes ablaze. Well, not, we'll, we'll explain that it's a metaphor. It's, well, we it's do a metaphor it. slash a future. Yeah, we'll be they'll be totally on board once we explain it to them. <laughs> Um, oh, I see what you're oh, doing. Oh, I see. Yeah, go ahead. Proceed. 
uh, proceed to the root. I, I do think that people need to know, you know, need to really see and sit with what it will look like for their grandkids. So you just take a photo of their grandkids, maybe a baby, especially with the baby, because then it's like more realistic. They'll actually live within this time of, of an uninhabitable planet. I think a lot of people would be like, fuck our grandkids. Well, that's what they're being like now. Right. You really think so? Yeah, they're like, look, they're young. They got their whole lives ahead of them. They're going to be having sex for the first time. That's awesome. Like, that's not going to happen for me. Like, you know. You, you think grandparents have FOMO against their <laughs> and resent their grandkids? Well, that would be that would be weird. But on the off chance that they don't have that, maybe they would just want their grand. It's not going to be that awesome to have sex when the world is ablaze. No, it'll still be awesome. I guess it'll be harder logistically. Right. That's true. So, yeah. you know, look, so now, okay, now, oh shit, now this is, you really threw a wrench in our plans. Now, now grandparents are going to want climate change. Resentful FOMO grandparents are going to want climate change because <laughs> they're going to want to fuck up their grandkids' sex lives as much as possible. <laughs> We're going to have to cut that out and just leave in the, if you want to, I mean, that's another thing. So maybe some kind of sexual favors in exchange for doing the right thing or withholding See, sex. You're, is a you're, strata. You're really, you're really into the positive reinforcement thing. Right. Well, we could do the other way. We would just Liz Estrada and withhold sex because we could take their partners on this sightseeing vacation that I'm talking about, you know, take them, invite them without their even knowing. Right. They just wake up. <laughs> They're just, they just feel some kind of, they just somehow like some, there's some, eth there's something in the ether. There's something in the air. Right. They lose consciousness. They wake up in a different country right right and the yes. only way they can get back is it's when just to fix is to solve the climate change problem yeah they, they give it they invest in they commit this sounds investment. like this sounds like a plot to like saw nine right like oh, you I, can I, only you can only get out of the room if you solve climate change like there's a that would be great there's a bandsaw hitting hitting straight for one of your limbs yeah um, we could do that too yeah, you gotta you gotta solve climate change before before we let you out. Um, I, yeah, I think I think we came up with some good ideas. Let us know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure those respond. are gonna go straight to the top of the of the uh, UN recommendations. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so we have a great. Do you want to uh, tell our, yeah. guy, our our audience what? Yeah, we, what have, we great, have in store. Great guests. We have, as we promised, uh, another. Funny, you know, Matt was worried about how we transition out of the climate change thing. Well, luckily, we have something that's equally upbeat. We'll be talking to Leslie Bloom, an award-winning journalist and fiction writer whose latest best-selling book is Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up, and the reporter who revealed it to the world. And it's about the U.S. government's cover-up of the real effects of the atomic bomb and the censorship and then ensuing self-censorship that um, the story uh, elicited uh, from the public and the remarkably brave writer who made it known to the world. Uh, it's, it's a book about, the, it, it's about John Hersey's John book. John Hersey, right. Uh, writer, yeah. Hiroshima, which was, I, I think it was like a mandatory design element of everybody who was like liberal left of center uh, and had a house in anywhere, anywhere like before 1980, between, between like 1955 and 1980. It had to be in the house. It was sort of like if you that the whole thing in Wayne's World, or where they gave you the Super Tramp album if the, if you lived in the suburbs in the seventies. Right. Yeah, like you had to have Hiroshima if you if you were a certain. 
I don't think my parents had it, which is really, really embarrassing. Yeah. It's a great book. It, it, it's actually a great book. It's and it, it's got a it's got an incredible structure to it in terms of how they how he told the story. Yeah, uh, we'll talk, which, we which definitely we, talk we, about. Which we should definitely talk about. So yeah. it, it, this 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 will be fun. Her uh, other books are this. interesting too. Everybody Behaves Badly is about um, Ernest Hemingway's debut novel. It Happened Here is an uh, artistic history of old New York as seen through the prism of one of its grandest hotels, which is the St. Regis. Very interesting, very interesting books. And then nice. writes kids' books, hmm. children's books. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. So let's, without further ado, let's, let's talk to uh, Leslie Bloom. so much leslie bloom for joining us um wanted to know what inspired you to write the book beyond the 75 year anniversary um wh why this story well when i was um you know conceiving my next project it was uh 2016 and it was uh right around, it was either right before or right after trump's election and you know the the our the press had just undergone this transformation in you know the eyes of Trump world from being you know serving the common good to being enemies of the people and you know I'm I'm a second generation journalist my dad was Walter Cronkite's writer um, he wrote for Harry Reasoner I mean I grew up in in a newsroom and I married into a newsroom also my husband is a is a journalist and also a first amendment attorney like our whole community are journalists We're just talking about that today and um, I mean, and so all of a sudden to see your entire community be under assault like that and be designated as enemies of the people was so shocking and demoralizing. And it was, it, it felt like an all hands on deck moment. So I knew that I wanted my next book to be um, something that really presented to the public the strongest case for supporting the media and, and you know, reinstating this idea, helping to reinstate this idea that, that the, the media journalism at its best serves the common good. And so when I came across Hersey's, Hersey's story, which had been shockingly untold, um, I knew that I had my story. How did you even come across it when you did come across it? So, I, you know, I was sniffing around uh, World War II narratives, but everything has really been done, you know, especially in the European theater and, you know, the journalists there like, you know, Ernie Pyle and Ed Murrow. I mean, they're so, Martha Gellhorn, so well documented. My husband and I are out to dinner one night and he says to me, you know, God, I wonder how, how they covered Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we, he was thinking about it solely from a logistical point of view, like how in hell would you get into a nuclear, not just a nuclear fallout zone, but one of the two sites of ex exclusive sites of nuclear attack in history. But for me, when he said that, I was like, I had a, like that Hitchcockian pull zoom moment where I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. So I looked into it and um, it had been covered, but not enough. And then I realized that, you know, the true impact of Hersey's reporting and the, the suppression of information about the truth about nuclear aftermath in Hiroshima had never been adequately written about in 75 years since. And so when you get that kind of a, a scoop, even though it's a historical scoop, you leap on it. So for people who don't, uh, who aren't aware, so the, one of the reasons that we're talking to you at, at this time is that this is the anniversary of uh, of the bombing of Hiroshima, where right? it was August sixth. Nagasaki. The way that this story came out was was really unique. Um, it's not entirely clear that they knew that, that they knew what Hersey was up to when he was over there, and then he came through and he had to go through this incredible process to get 
to get the the story into the New Yorker. Could you just sort of outline the basics for people who don't know uh, what happened? Uh, and who I'll, I'll, I'll try I'll try to be concise. Oh, look, let's start with Hersey then. So um, John Hersey was um, in 1945 when the bombs were dropped. He was, you know, an incredibly accomplished and celebrated journalist who had been a war reporter for Time Inc. since 1939. And he'd seen every theater of action. He had seen concentration camps. He had seen combat. Um, he had also been in the Pacific theater. He'd been under fire by the Japanese. He was a commended war hero. He'd helped evacuate um, a wounded Marine um, during a Pacific theater fight. Um, so he's he's really well known. And at one point he was even being considered to be the heir apparent to take over as managing editor to Time Inc. So he's he's a big player, but he had just left Time Inc. and he was had gone independent. He'd become a freelancer. And so the bomb, the bomb is dropped on Hiroshima. And at first he's, he has really mixed feelings about it. He's like, this is obviously, we're in a new era yet, whether people realize it or not. And he, he was still unpacking it for a long time, um, you know, what the implications of it were. But it, it, he also felt anything at that point that helped end the war wasn't entirely a bad thing. But then three days later on August 9th, the U.S. Uh, military drops a bomb, you know, drops the atomic bomb in Nagasaki, and at that point, he's he's totally horrified. And he thinks that they're in, you know, wartime atrocity, war crime territory, and he doesn't know yet that he is going to what he's going to write about the bombs, but he knows he wants to. And in the meantime, there's a whole press corps, an Allied press corps, that's converging upon Japan, and people are, you know, reporters are vying to be the first reporters to get the fir the first stories out of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and 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 say you know what it looks like on the ground there and a few reporters do get into both of those places and they report that not only was this a mega bomb in terms of explosive content you know one bomb wipes out an entire city but that there's a sinister what some of them call disease x that's ravaging survivors and um, you know they're trying to parse what that is and it's clear that the radioactivity um, from the bombs is, is you know, kills long after detonation. The U.S. government is at great pains to cover that up, and they do so successfully for months before Hersey is able to get in eight months later. So about, about that, now, there's an interesting question with all this, which is that part of the rationale I always thought of dropping the bomb was to put the rest of the world on notice. And you, you even mentioned in the book that there that there was a little bit of tension over well, whether, whether or not they wanted to advertise the destructive power of the bomb, including the disease, uh, you know, the, the radioactive after effects. Uh, how much did that come into play? I mean, like, in other words, they did have to submit this to the military for review. And I know you talked about how, how difficult a decision that was, but is it, did they cover it up because, for, what was the reason that they covered it up and what was the reason they eventually permitted as much as they did? So the, U the U.S. government and the and the occupation forces, you know, they had they had really tough decisions to make. It was a it was a, a difficult line to walk because on one hand they did want to advertise the might of their new mega weapon. You know, there was a new sheriff in town, and they had worked incredibly hard in the Manhattan Project to develop this bomb for wartime use in only three years. It was a near miracle that it got done, and you know, so they they did want to message that you know in particular to their now former allies, the you know the Soviet Union. 
but at the same time, you know, even when earlier that that year in 1945, when they had, had firebombed Tokyo, there was already concern that the U.S. would be, quote, seen as outdoing Hitler in atrocities, end quote, as the then Secretary of War put it. And so there was worry about sacrificing the moral high ground. You know, they had just the U.S. had just won this painfully earned victory against the Axis powers and, you know, seeing, being seen to have, you know, incinerated a largely civilian population and you know, two largely civilian populations in two cities um, wasn't, wasn't, you know, that really great messaging, to be fair. Then um, there was also, there was a practical consideration in, in August of 1945, occupation forces are about to go into Japan tens of thousands of allied allied troops, and they were also going to be sent to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The, the story about those cities had to be that they, there was no radioactivity, that there was no fallout, that these troops would be safe. Um, the US government did dispatch uh, Manhattan Project principals and doctors to both cities very quickly after the bombings, basically as soon as they could get in, and they hastily cleared the cities. The, meaning that they said that they were safe for inhabitation. Um, as Leslie Groves, the head of the Manhattan Project, would put it shortly, he would say you could live there forever. Lo and behold, um, tens of Well, at least for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah. Right. As, long, as long or as short as they may yeah. be. Um, you know, in Nagasaki, they were store, you know, some of the troops were staying close to ground zero. And, you know, even troops that weren't housed close to the respective ground zeros were going to the ground zeros for, for selfies and for souvenirs. From the rubble. Unbelievable. But but they, but they did. I mean, I, there's a quote in the in the book uh, from Harry Truman, who was sort of promising. What was the quote? Like rain and ruin such as never uh, had never been seen before on Earth. Right. Like they they, they did want to emphasize that this was something awesome and new, but but not necessarily that that uh, radioactive after effect. Uh, yeah, is that the idea? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, they, they seemed like they were being almost ecstatically forthright, forthright, you know, when they first announced the bombings, you know, they, they said this is 20 worth equivalent of 20,000 tons of TNT, you know, we're drawing on the power from the sun. I mean, it, it was like almost biblical language that was used in the initial press language and, and release language, you know, to describe the bombs. They, again, they wanted the world to know that they got the bomb first, you know, because other countries had been working on it, including, by the way, Japan. You know, but at the same time, again, they had this this very uh, tight, they had to walk the tightrope because if they admitted, you know, that first of all, how little they knew about the radioactive fallout um, and how little they knew about their then experimental mega weapons, that again, wasn't a good look. So they went through extensive, uh, they went to great lengths to to suppress information about um, the, the long tail of, of the bombings in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And by the way, the, the Trinity test site in New Mexico, where they tested the first atomic bomb a few weeks earlier. And did this change, by the way, uh, the way you see the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of uh, like the, the debate, uh, whether it was justified, not justified, did it push you more in one direction or another? I think, you know, like most, you know, like many Americans, I was taught in schools, you know, that this, this, the bombings had been necessary to end World War II. I think that, you know, through my research, I have never been convinced by arguments that were made at the time and have been made since that they could not have done a test bomb in an uninhabited area and invited observers to show that they had this operational thing. I don't believe that they really needed to drop it on a civilian, a largely civilian population, even if it did have a little bit of military significance. So that that definitely, that's that's where I landed with this. 
And that was through your research or had you already started thinking about that before? No, that was through my research. I mean, honestly, this was not a big topic with me before it really became, you know, the only my work before it came my life. Um, you know, because again, and we have to remember, you know, I came at this topic initially, not because of, a, of an overriding interest in the Pacific theater or, or Hiroshima, but because of, of, it was a power of the press story. Right. I actually wanted to ask you about that. So the New York Times gave you a really rave review. I wanted to ask you about a critique that they made though, mm -hmm. um, to hear, I want you to know your response of that, uh, to this because they wrote, Fallout does suffer from two flaws. The first is the claim that the United States mounted an important cover-up to hide the realities of radiation sickness from public knowledge. Bloom's publisher chose to hype this claim in the subtitle, a mistake, and then in a letter accompanying the advanced proof, went so far as to describe the cover-up as the biggest of the century and a cloak and dagger tale. It must be embarrassing for Bloom. It's obvious to anyone who has been around the US Army that whatever ineffective obfuscation occurred during the months following the atomic bombings resulted from the same old stuff, a mixture of authentic ignorance, reflexive secrecy and incompetent military spin. The book's second flaw is the unnecessary claim that Hersey's work altered the course of history, changed attitude towards the arms race and has helped the world avoid nuclear war ever since. This is just silly though. There are indications that Hersey himself may have believed some of it in his old age. If so, given his contributions to humanity, he may be excused. But what altered the course of history was the acquisition of nuclear weapons by countries other than the United States, particularly the Soviet Union in 1948, and the certainty of retaliation should ever a nuclear weapon be used again. Were it not for that threat, it seems likely that the United States would have struck again against other foes, North Korea, Russia, China, North Vietnam, Cuba, somewhere in the Middle East, despite the suffering described so powerfully in, Hir in Hersey's Hiroshima. So, well, first of all, you know, the, and I'm the, asking you that in case you, not, uh, you know, spoiler yeah, I'm, alert, I, 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 I'm I, not I, endorsing their critique, <laughs> as you probably could tell from the tone I use when reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it was okay. So there was it was kind of a bizarre review um, uh, because, as you said, you know, part of it was was completely ecstatic because the whole first part of the review was about how painstaking the research was. And guess what? I have thirty thousand words of, of footnotes in my book. You know, so I'm I'm ex exceedingly nerdy. You can see my sourcing, and you can yeah. see how, how deeply the cover up was documented. I literally have in my book. A, um, a, a spokesman, a government spokesman saying, I covered it up and John Hersey uncovered it. My editor calls him his own deep throat. So it was, um, it was, it was kind of strange. We actually had a, you know, a, a reader write to the New York Times and say, you can't have it both ways. You can't extol the research. And then without basis, you know, undercut the, the primary findings of the research and, and the New York Times to their credit printed it. Yeah, look, I mean, the bottom is I'm, I'm pretty comfortable <laughs> To, to the point of 99.999% in my research and you know, having documented the fact that there was an absolutely concerted effort to suppress information. Um, I'm certainly not the only person to have documented this. I stand on the you know, predecessor scholarship of several generations of, of historians who have documented the ways in which the MacArthur occupation and the US government um, you know, controlled reporters and controlled the narrative and steered the narrative. So, with due respect, I disagree with that aspect of the New York Times. I would also like to point out that the Soviets detonated their first bomb in 1949, 19, not 1948. Um, and so, you know, Hersey did, um, he did help change the world. 
And yes, obviously, you know, the balance of power um, changed significantly when the Soviets did get their bomb um, and then other other partners, because, but then it also accelerated, set off a nuclear arms race. Um, you know, even though our arsenal today has greatly reduced from what it was at peak, um, we still have enough now, thanks to that arms race, to incinerate civilization many times over. And what Hersey did is he brought to a global audience a true picture of what nuclear warfare looks like, which up to that point had not been done. People were had been, you know, really encouraged and successfully encouraged to think of the bombs as conventional mega bombs, and. You know, Hersey's portrait, very intimate portrait. He went to these cities and he did the reporting and he got the testimonies. His portrait brought a visceral association with nuclear warfare and made it much harder for, for any for for leaders of any nuclear state, not just the US, to, to cavalierly use these weapons in warfare after after his report came out. So I stand by that as well. Didn't didn't Truman actually say that it was nothing but an artillery weapon? He absolutely did. And, um, you know, he he stuck with that narrative. He just said it was a bigger piece of artillery, you know, and again, really still trying to create in the minds of the Americans that this was a um, totally acceptable um, weapon of war. Um, he certainly wasn't the only president to, to feel that way. Um, Eisenhower had considered use of use of a nuclear weapon in Korea as a soft a cost saving mechanism because it's a lot cheaper to lob a bomb you know in in the direction of, a, of an enemy country than it is to move troops uh, it, it over over there and have you know the whole kit and caboodle set up. Um, but you know, leaders after Hersey's report came out, their their hands were a little bit more tied because their publics. You know, this, these are, this is still a democratic country. You know, we, you know, we, the, the public that elects leaders would have been a lot more resistant to the idea again of just you know more casually using these bombs in in warfare, and so it became much more difficult to actually even consider using them, in, except for in an extremely dire case like ending the deadliest conflict in human history, which is what World War II was. And can you give some examples of the of the cover up? Just for people who haven't read the book, which I highly recommend. Basically, when when the troops, so Allied troops were converging upon um, upon Japan, and with them came a press corps, uh, and you know these were a lot of war correspondents who had been what we would call today embeds for years. And again, you know, in the in the earliest days after after the bombings, several of the reporters decided that they would want to be the first ones to to get in on the ground and report, you know, what what it had been like to be on the receiving end of nuclear warfare. So they're very even even under those circumstances, you know, where it's it's a chaotic environment when they're when troops are all still landing, those reporters are still pretty under control of the the military units that they're traveling with, um, and they're under control of what's called the PRO, uh, the, you know, the press relations office and and their people. And so the first the first reporter, there was one reporter who got in first. Um, and it, he had actually been trapped in Japan. He was half American, half Japanese, and had been stuck in Japan through the duration of, of the war. And he managed to get down to Hiroshima because his mom had been down there. And he reported for his um, former news service, UP, that Hiroshima had been completely devastated, You know that there was a sinister disease that was spreading. They didn't know if, if it was from gas or from what, because at that point, they just had so little idea about the, the weapons. And his report is run 
in UP, but then curiously, when it is rerun in the New York Times a few days later, that all of the mentions of potential radiation or gas are taken out and the, the, the report is, is completely truncated. The next reporter who gets in um, is a, 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 an Australian reporter who does get to Hiroshima. He reports from ground zero. He's somehow able to get his report out, I think through Morse code if I'm remembering right. Um, and it's a, it's a disastrous a PR disaster for the US government. Um, you know, he, he reports that it, there's a horrible disease ravaging survivors and, you know, Japanese doctors and, are at an absolute loss about how to treat it. You know, the, the city is total decimation. It's a humanitarian disaster. The U.S. government and military and occupation forces were not going to have another report like that come out. And they organized fast. Um, and so they basically corralled um, the other uh, occupation reporters into what one of them called a press ghetto away from Tokyo in an area called Yokohama and kept them under control until they could really close, you know, uh, until the occupation forces could really take control of or, over other parts of the country. And after that point, really to travel around, you had to get, you had to get permission to travel throughout the country. You couldn't access other parts of the country um, unless you were given explicit permission and frankly, jeeps and gas. Um, you know, from the U.S. military, and there was a joke among um, the, the 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 journalists who were part of the occupation press corps that the the, the army um, told you how much gasoline you could use, how many how much food you could eat, and how many cigarettes you could smoke, because they were the ones who who gave all that stuff out, and so they had ways to control the press, um, and so it was really hard to get any information out um, on behalf of Japan-based press corps. It's, it's worth just adding one more thing. This is just the Allied press corps. The Japanese press corps was put under a strict press code where they couldn't even mention Hiroshima in poetry, much less a press report. So, I mean, the Japanese were not able to speak for themselves until after the press code was lifted years later. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. That was great. It was. Yeah, those Sorry, I was singing a Hiroshima. Oh, uh, your so socialist summer camp. I can't wait to review your documentary. It's better be nice about it. Yeah. <laughs> Why would I, I be nice like about it? Out of loyalty. <laughs> Hiroshima girl. It's a song we would sing. We don't sing it anymore. Thank God. But it's oh, um the refrain is for I am dead, for I am dead. Also, I just want to give a shout out to Nagasaki. I feel like they're the Tobago. You know, everyone's like Trinidad and Tobago. No one says and Tobago. Right. So Hiroshima happened and then Nagasaki happened, August 6th, August 9th. And I'm not a defender of, of the bombing. <laughs> okay, hold on to your, I hope you guys are sitting down. I'm not a defender of the bombing of Hiroshima, but I think that even people who are, who buy, you know, who accept certain arguments that I don't accept, like it's, You'd be very hard pressed to find a justification of Nagasaki. If you were on a debating team and they asked you to take the side of bombing Nagasaki, I think that I think that the the Japanese had not surrendered. Yeah, they had not, but there were certain things that they could let them do that they should have let them do. Apparently, that it was much more about the Soviets coming and. Um, For sure. Yeah. That was why yeah. I was asking her at the beginning of that. I mean, right. like the, the, the part of the story is a little bit sort of counterintuitive because they they wanted to scare the crap out of everybody right. uh, with this new technology. Yes. I, I think that's why they did it the second time. Right. And the Soviets also is kind of counterintuitive, right? Because they wanted to eventually vilify the United States 
but also they want to downplay its power. I wouldn't say villa. I mean, you kind of lend yourself to the vilification when you actually do this. But you know what I mean? Like the the both the United States and the Soviet Union, because, you know, and this is what is it called? Atomic diplomacy. But, you know, the, the Soviets were not exactly uh, great stewards of democracy, of, of nuclear power. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to read here just quickly from a list sure. of nuclear accidents from the 34 major nuclear accidents that involving nuclear weapons that took Matt, place. That Matt keeps his, he has a vision board where he keeps I do. His. Date, October 3rd, 1986. Location, Atlantic Ocean. A Soviet Yankee One class nuclear powered ballistic missile submarine suffered an explosion and fire in one of its missile tubes 480 miles east of Bermuda. The submarine sank while under tow on October 6th at 18,000 feet of water. Two nuclear reactors and approximately 34 nuclear weapons were on board. So if you happen to be uh, 480 miles east of Bermuda and you have a, an inkling to go uh, diving, there's 34 nuclear weapons down there. And there's a whole bunch of stories like that of nuclear bombs that are just going to in the bottom of the ocean somewhere that we don't know about. It's, it makes me, whenever I read that list, I'm, I'm like more nervous than I was. Um, Before reading that list. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, there, there were a lot of things when I, when I, when I was reading her book, I, I, I was thinking about some of the ironies, like this was the New Yorker they published with and yeah. that Her Hersey published with, and the New Yorker had to- Keep it secret. Well, they also had to be pretty brave in taking on the U.S. government, the U.S. military establishment, to tell a real story that was being covered up. And right. one has to wonder whether the New Yorker of today would be that same publication. You know, you think, yes. you, you think about the, the two different versions of the Osama bin Laden capture story that between Cy Hirsch's version and the one that, uh, that they ultimately went with and, and some other stories that have kind of come through there over the years and, and been, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Like what, what, what would be the publication that would really aggressively do that these days? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking like, what, what are the parallels to today? Like what are the, well, sorry, I mean, that was totally unclear. Like what I was trying to think of what the comparable cover-ups have been. I mean, I think so we talk about we talk about it a lot right. in the show. It's like that's been kind of like um, outsourced to WikiLeaks and other organizations like that, frankly. Right. It's like a, the United States uh, sort of mainstream media. You know, they, they've done they've done reporting on things that are embarrassing to the military. I mean, right. you, you go back to Abu Ghraib, I guess, which is one that comes to mind. How much do you really hear about? other stuff i mean even yeah. on even on this issue if if, if you really if you really wanted to get into why they don't cover the nuclear tension issue it's because probably a lot of a lot of po politicians in neither party are really terribly interested in getting into the question of is it a is it a good idea for russia and the united right. states to have you know for, for those tensions to be rising in syria in ukraine i i just i just think that there isn't a lot of institutional will within the journalism community to do that kind of stuff yeah anymore it's, right uh, i was thinking of that too like yeah would they do that today where would they be on this today yeah if where, like where, obama hiroshima no if trump did yes well think about think about stuff like the drone program yeah 
right? Or the going into Iraq on false pretenses like that, that it came out, but you know, the New York Times sat on a bunch of those stories. I mean, somebody would probably do it, but it, would, it, it it's not. The Intercept or, the, or Glenn's Substack. Glenn's Glenn Substack. Yeah, that's where I'm it sure would he would be. say not the Intercept, right? No, it's it's, it's just a, it's a I mean, the Intercept was set up to do stuff like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually so. had a, a, a little fight with uh, my viewers on the Katie Halper show live stream chat because there's a lot of understandable like frustration with the intercept and to me i get it and i think there was there was a lot of russiagating from there but it's like the the actually adversarial media is so limited i mean i have problems with democracy now too but some leftists like will throw away i think the baby with the bathwater, and we just don't have enough good outlets to be like canceling outlets because they have some problematic stuff in it i mean you can be skeptical of reporting when you when there's a certain like pattern, right? Like I'm sure you are when you read Russiagate stuff on The Intercept, but you know. I mean, I think The Intercept has other problems that go way beyond Russiagate yeah. at this point. Well, this is more of that online lefty beefing that we talk about a lot, which again, it's kind of complicated because you don't want to dismiss certain actually serious things that have happened in that fight. Um, again, I think that, you know, describing Aaron as working for the Russians is not, is, is like laughable, but it's beyond just beefing. Like it's a real problem. It's a real like McCarthyite, you know, thing. Sure. That happened. Yeah. But I think that sometimes there's a fo such a focus on personality and not on the story or the reporting. And there are a lot of reporters I hate, but whose stories I won't dismiss outright. You know what I mean? Yeah, like I, mean, I hate their politics, or, or I, I hate the way they treated Sanders. But news outlets, especially if they have to make money. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about the Intercept is it, it it's never had real financial pressure because, you know, they had a billionaire who was just writing a check, and they didn't. As as a result of that, they didn't have to produce a lot of content either. It, like you right. know, they, they they would have people who would file it just sort of every now and then and make lots of money. You know, if you have to make money, every news outlet is going to make some choices that are are going right. to not look so good after a while. I mean, even even Democracy Now, I think it's probably fallen into a trap or two. And yeah. Of course, it happens on Substack too. So not here, you know. though. Not on useful idiots. Not on useful idiots. We are, we are com completely coming. immune to no. To any we, de we depend on donors and viewers and listeners like you who who subscribe and support our Substack at usefulidiots.substack.com. Actually, this is this would be a good point to guilt trip everybody and point out that we did this intensely depressing episode with graphic scenes. Yeah. of people dying of radiation poisoning to bring you uh, an important issue that has been ignored by the mainstream media. And we did, and we did that knowing that it would probably, uh, we would probably lose audience. So yeah. as a result of that, you should turn around and actually give us money. Yes. Or you're letting the, you're basically, if you don't, you're, you're letting, letting the terrorists the by, there are people who consider Hiroshima state terrorism, by the way. So if you don't right. give us money, Give your money to useful idiots. What is and that again? Is that Christmas women. cinema? No, it's just like a, there's, it's like a, a thing, you know, it's like give your money to women and it has the like paw, the, the clapping hands. So it's okay. give your money to women. It's like a Twitter thing? To, yes. To uh. useful idiots and women and Jewish women. And uh, what are you again? 
He, yeah, I'm an I, an, I'm an and P. An an and P men and of P color, men. <laughs> tall men, atypically. You were like you have a lot of things. You're you're a lot of firsts. I'm a lot of firsts. Yeah, you know, first award winning national oh. book award. You got a book award? Um, no, what I got a national. Get? I got a national magazine award. You got a national. I knew it was one written form or another. National magazine award. You and are Izzy. And Izzy, you are the how many? I keep wanting to say IHOPs. What is it? What is your your thing? What ethnicity? What ethnicity? And and Piyama, uh, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. Okay, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific, Pacific Islander. Islander, and he. And P. Yeah. And P. You were yeah. probably the tallest and P winner of the magazine National, National magazine, magazine Award. award. Yeah. Um, and probably the only and P Izzy winner at all. Throwing the probably, height out of yes. the equation. Yes. And and that's, you know, because uh, uh, there's been such an extraordinarily large number of Izzy winners. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's an amazing feat, given that. Given, well, you, given that all, all, all seven of us or whatever it is, yeah. Well, you're also the only of color host of Useful Idiots. But you're, but, but you have gender. On your, 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 your intersectionality poker score is way higher than mine. Right, I guess so, because although uh, you're straight, I, yeah. Uh, did you just come out as not straight? No, no. I'm just saying that, like, could, you're right. You, I got gender. You, you you could boost your score a little bit if you went well, out I went and made some choices. I went to Wesleyan, so you know. Oh right. Everyone, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what I should say. I I have I've dabbled in asexuality. <laughs> I, I, I was eight, I, right. I think we've all we've all dabbled. We've all in dabbled that in that. I mean, I was that yeah. for the first many years of my life. You know, there 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 have been periods of time. When, you know, I, pro probably more than intermittent periods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so this was great. Yeah, this um, was great. And uh, th thank you for uh, tuning into this uh, highly educational episode. We will see you again soon. Yeah. Was don't you? don't kill any um, any Japanese children with uh, radiation. Right. Uh, or or, or uh, hosts of uh, Pod Save America with radiation. But right. if you yeah. had to choose between children. I'm not saying you have to. There's no situation where you're going to be forced to radiate one group of not another. But in that that, that could be a situation. It could be that, a situation, especially uh, with climate change, things are really unpredictable. Right. People I mean you, you you could you can end up locked in a basement and with a diabolical person who forces you to make that choice. Right. It could even be us. <laughs> <laughs> You right. could find yourself in a basement with Katie and Matt, um, one at least one of the Pod Save hosts, and a child from Hiroshima. Right. Yes. And you'd have to make that choice. All right, All right. See you next week. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 